Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours and across cyberspace is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rich. We are closing out a decade of information technology writing and news, and I can't wait to get to some of the big stories from this year. I mean, we're, we're closing out an arbitrary 10-year period, which may or may not coincide with a decade, depending on how pedantic you want to be with how you count your decades. But yes, we're doing our year in review episode. Uh, always fun to look back at the year uh, of news that was. Gives you actually a little perspective. You know, I, I think, especially when you do a show like this, you kind of get caught up in the the week-to-week or even the day-to-day. We have a Slack channel where we kind of go back and forth and, and talk about the week's news and stuff like that. But to, to kind of bring it back and see what some of the broader narratives are, I thought was a really interesting exercise. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. Me too. First up, I thought we would, uh, you know, a lot of acquisitions this year. I thought, let's maybe try and think, what was the biggest acquisition? So I, I busted out a couple of these, Tom, and uh, we'll go through the list and then we'll, we'll kind of declare our picks. Uh, first up was uh, Juniper acquiring Mist Systems. Uh, Mist, kind of a maker of... AI-enabled uh, Wi-Fi and Juniper kind of getting into that market. NVIDIA buying Mellanox uh, came, uh, I think it was in like Q1 or early Q2, something like that. Uh, really, uh, uh, two companies I think we're both uh, familiar with uh, through Field Day. Uh, VMware acquiring Bitnami, uh, which again was an interesting acquisition. Salesforce acquiring Tableau, which is maybe a little bit more tangential to a lot of like the more infrastructure conversations we have, but super important and probably the biggest buy financial uh, uh, or by money exchanged, I should say. That was in the tens of billions of dollars in that acquisition. Uh, Intel acquiring Barefoot Networks. This is a little bit more field day related, but I think if you know the tech behind it, really interesting. Uh, VMware acquiring Carbon Black and Pivotal. They basically put it in the same press uh, release uh, for a uh, combined almost $5 billion. Uh, HPE buying Cray, the supercomputing giants and uh, uh, one of the main characters in the novel Jurassic Park. And then uh, F5 buying Nginx. uh, Again, kind of at the same time that NVIDIA bought Mellanox. I believe we talked about that on the same show. So of those acquisitions, Tom, what is your biggest one or... What will have the most impact uh, maybe in 2020? The more I think about it, the more I believe that VMware buying Carbon Black is probably the one that's going to have the most impact. And and I know this because it is probably the least sexy acquisition on the list. <laughs> um, and, and that's where you should look for the money. Uh, VMware basically bought themselves a company to license security on every endpoint that they virtualize. Uh, that is just a cash cow waiting to happen. And I'm waiting for the uh, the endpoint security infrastructure space to uh, realign around these ideas. Yeah, some of these I, I felt were kind of you know interesting or, wow, I, I didn't realize you guys didn't already do that. But, <laughs> but VMware is augmenting their existing capabilities. That, to me, signals that they're not going down without a fight in this whole cloud thing. Yeah, um... Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was tough to pare down all of the VMware acquisitions because they had a bunch of minor ones. I also didn't want to leave out Palo Alto Networks. They made a ton of acquisitions, but that to me was more rounding out their product offering than I think having big seismic change. VMware getting into that endpoint, that, like you said, not the sexiest announcement, but 
that uh, that can carve out a big chunk of their bottom line and really change kind of that endpoint market too. So I, I think definitely uh, a big acquisition. I was kind of debating between, uh, you know, NVIDIA buying Mellanox is a big deal in that it's kind of a recognition that where NVIDIA is going and how they want to grow a lot of their AI and ML stuff. I think networking is going to be becoming increasingly important or interconnects, I guess. Um, and that's increasingly becoming as much of a network scale story as it is about building one really powerful chip. Um, and definitely has a lot of ramifications, a lot of money being exchanged there. But for me, the big news uh, was Juniper acquiring Mist Systems. And again, this wasn't necessarily the biggest dollar figure, but I've already seen since this was announced early uh, in 2019, Juniper being really aggressive in 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 kind of integrating that portfolio, rolling it out, and really justifying um, what uh, what interested a lot of the Tech Field Day delegates when we heard from Miss Systems about how they were not just doing lip service to putting, you know, quote-unquote AI or building a virtual assistant into wireless, but really using that as a tool and making making that use case for all the promises that we're hearing about AI actually having meaningful benefits. And I think that can be incredibly useful for a company like Juniper. And clearly, they have a willingness uh, to really be aggressive with that. So to me, that was, you know, might not necessarily had the, the biggest financial exchange, even shake up the industry at large. But for Juniper, I think it's going to pay huge dividends and uh, already already seeing that being rolled out right now. Yeah, I would totally agree. And and it's funny that the acquisition happened in the uh, February timeframe. And by the time we got to Juniper next work uh, last month, it was kind of, you know, oh, yeah, Mist is part of them. But the initial reaction was, oh, my God, Juniper's buying another wireless company. Let's see how long this one lasts. <laughs> and now we're starting to see what Mist represents with their software being pervaded through all of Juniper's uh, hardware infrastructure. So I think that, you know, kind of in the same vein of what happened when HPE bought Aruba, uh, this is kind of a reverse acquisition. Uh, Mist is going to be everywhere before you know it. Yeah, and if I I guess the biggest uh, meh for me I guess on this list is HPE buying Cray just because <laughs> it, just because I'm like okay I'm I'm sure there are super useful assets Cray has probably tons of su- smart supercomputer people but you know when are we going to to see like in terms of even as an enterprise customer you know we're used to things kind of being delayed or taking a while for things to roll out and and that's just one of those things where it's like you the 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 bleed over from that acquisition is going to be so gradual and so uh, hard to observe that I think, um, you know, if, if we hadn't heard about that, I, I don't know if it would have in the end of the day matter to HPE customers necessarily. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, hard to talk about uh, 2019 without discussing Huawei to some regard. There's no denying that Huawei and U.S.-China relations in general played into a lot of the stories we talked about this year on the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, there was, of course, the U.S. Commerce Department's decision not to renew their export license, putting the company on the blacklist in the middle of the year, banning uh, it from U.S. trade. And, and really, uh, at the time... There was a lot of hand-wringing about the implications of that, how Huawei would continue as a business. This reminded me of when they kind of dropped a similar hammer on ZTE the year previously. And basically ZTE going, we can't be a company, and whether Huawei would be in that same boat now – Things have evolved since then, but uh, other things involved, um, uh, obviously, their CTO is still, I believe, under house arrest in Canada and undergoing trial there. The FCC got involved, uh, banning the uh, Universal Service Fund funds from uh, being used on Huawei equipment and all but demanding that U.S. ISPs divest of Huawei equipment. They haven't gone quite that far yet, but all indications are in 2020. We will be seeing that. Uh 
at the end of the day, though, it seems like Huawei was still able to keep doing business. Their earnings report weren't, nece- weren't nearly as dire and actually showed growth in a number of uh, uh, areas uh, that I think surprised a lot of people. And it seems like now we're starting to get on the verge of maybe seeing a U.S.-China trade deal that may lift some of these sanctions. Um, it won't affect government policy necessarily in terms of, you know, uh, you're not going to see Huawei infrastructure uh, in the Pentagon or anything like that anytime soon. Uh, but do you think 2020 will see us talking about this a lot less and will we go back to uh, a little bit more business as usual or at least business as it was pre-late uh, 2018? Uh, in short, yes, but not for the reason you're thinking. Um, there have been some government policies that China has put in place that are essentially uh, protectionist in nature. Uh, things like, you know, um, foreign-owned companies and their ability to provide secure tunnels back to their organizations and and cybersecurity threats and things like that. I think what we're actually going to see in 2020 is Huawei is going to take a bigger portion of the Chinese and Eastern Asia market away from traditional infrastructure vendors, and they're going to be backed by the Chinese government to make sure that that happens. Um, those gains that you talked about, I would be shocked to see in 2020 if Huawei doesn't make huge gains at the expense of other people who are being booted out of those markets because they just can't compete. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. In 2017, 2018, you just got me thinking about this. We heard a lot of stories about, hey, AWS is going into China, but they've made a deal with um, Baidu or something like that to basically like, hey, here's our software stack. You run it on your hardware and we'll take a chunk of the money and stuff like that. And that was kind of seen for a while as the way U.S. companies I just had to operate in China because they didn't know the lay of the land. And there was all sorts of uh, political and economic reasons why it was tough for U.S. companies to, to operate by themselves in the country. Didn't see a lot of those stories in 2019. Now, obviously, the trade relations were a lot more frosty. But, Tom, to your point, I think going forward, we're going to increasingly, like you said, um, see, uh, you know, uh, China kind of um, – they seem to be signaling that they're going to be making a turn inward. Uh, uh, we just had a story, I think, two weeks ago about China um, taking all of their government and all public institutions off foreign-owned compu- uh, hardware and software. So if that has a larger trend for the rest of you know their, their users in the country, their citizens in the country, uh, definitely hard for any U.S. business to operate under those conditions. So very interesting stuff. Uh, next up, we were talking about this a little bit in the uh, before we kind of started the show proper, uh, but Slack went public this year, remember? Seems like they've been public for a while. I think it's just because we use Slack every day and we just kind of assimilated that into our brain that they were a public company after a while. Uh, but we got to look at their user numbers as a result of that. And I think that helped shift a lot of the narrative around Slack. In their S1 filing, they reported they had 10 million daily active users. And this set up kind of a natural confrontation with their rival Microsoft Teams, which prior to going public and having to file those public disclosures was definitely seen as a rival, but we didn't have any firm metrics to say, okay, who's bigger? You know, uh, uh, what's the scale of each of these organizations? I think the narrative around Slack was they were growing very fast. Uh, they were this, you know, startup unicorn, that kind of stuff. Um, and now we're seeing that, you know, Microsoft Teams, for a number of reasons, has substantially more users at this time and seems to be growing at a faster rate with more enterprise interest in that platform going forward, at least among the, the Fortune 500. While Slack clearly has had one of the more successful IPOs of the year, um, if you look at a company like WeWork that didn't IPO, uh, definitely successful. <laughs> Just by the fact that it happened, uh, the narrative around the company has definitely shifted uh, uh, from tech darling to a, a lot of the realities of stiff competition, especially with a productivity giant like Microsoft. In 2020, Tom, 
Do you think we will see this settling into a more fixed rhythm where we're less worried like, oh, this quarter they grew this much and, you know, Microsoft Teams reported these numbers? Or we continue to see this being an ongoing conversation about, you know, is Slack going to be in trouble, I guess, in 2020 or will it settle into two distinct camps? I think it'll be two distinct camps. I mean, we've had it for years with Internet Explorer versus Navigator or Office versus WordPerfect. I mean, you name it. There's always going to be, you know, if you can find two people that compete directly against each other, that's the big thing that everybody wants to talk about. Long story short, Slack has a purpose for people. Teams has a purpose for people. Teams is better suited for people who are already running on Microsoft stacks anyway. So I see this being basically settling down into both will coexist. They'll settle in users. There'll be some back and forth a little bit, but ultimately it won't matter in the long run. But Slack remains a uh, independent company uh, going through this year. You don't see any kind of larger acquisition play to compete with a, a dominant software stack from Microsoft or anything like that. No, I can't even think of who would want to buy Slack at this point. <laughs> All right. Next up here, uh, speaking of things that I guess we wouldn't expect, uh, we have a new Star Wars film coming out this week. And so let's talk about some Jedis. In October, the U.S. Defense Department announced that Microsoft had beat out Amazon for the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract, uh, which will see Microsoft work with the Pentagon to modernize infrastructure with cloud services. It's estimated to be worth about $10 billion over the next decade. Uh, that alone was huge news in that everyone just assumed that Amazon was just going to walk away with this uh, for months now. And it came with a with a whole year of, you know, Oracle filing litigation, alleging conflicts of interest and arguing that the contract uh, couldn't be assigned to one vendor, that there were all sorts of reasons why it shouldn't be why it shouldn't be limited to just one company and that kind of stuff. Now we've seen that stabilize. Does this, you know, $10 billion big for any company, certainly big in the cloud market. Does this shift any of, you know, the, the, the cloud race a little bit? Does this move uh, Microsoft to being a close, you know, co-number one? Or, I mean, I, we know by earnings, Amazon is still the 800-pound gorilla in the room. But does this show, you know, Microsoft catching up to that, uh, to maybe compete to that number one spot? That would be true if I believe this was a done deal. Um, <laughs> I mean, Do let's be perfectly oh, so honest. The, so the bigger news is that this isn't over. <clears throat> oh, yeah, this is not over. Amazon's filed an appeal. They're claiming uh, political pressure and uh, bias, and Microsoft's going to fight it tooth and nail. And I firmly believe that this is going to go back out for bid again. Uh, just because I think will that, that, will that... Will it make our year in review 2020? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't doubt it. We will still be talking about this December of next year. Is the easiest solution for the Pentagon at this point to be like, fine, we're Amazon, you get a piece, Microsoft, you get a piece, Oracle, here's some pit. Like, is, is that like, if we just need to modernize Pentagon infrastructure of like, that's the mission critical thing that we need to do. Is that the most expedient way to do that? Do you think to just make yes. everybody give everybody money and make everybody happy? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's smarter to split it across two clouds and make them work together and assign Oracle Cloud uh, some data center in Guam. Uh, that way, Larry Ellison can have his island fortress and we're all happy. All right. Uh, speaking of happy, uh, Microsoft was certainly happy to announce a partnership with VMware earlier this year, back in April, making the virtualization giant's entire software stack supported on Microsoft Azure. This is Microsoft's second attempt at this and seems like it'll actually be successful this time uh, because it appears to actually be sanctioned by VMware. It's built by their partner, Cloud Simple. It's built by uh, uh, VMware's partner, Cloud Simple. AWS has had this integration going for a while, a more direct first-party integration, uh, but this felt to me like a solidification of the public cloud race really it's 
you know, the, the narrative is it's Amazon, Microsoft, distant third, GCP. This partnership coming out really made it seem like it's it's Amazon, Microsoft, and everybody else at this point. Am I misreading that at this point? You know, given that we have six months or more to process this, uh, is is that still the take on this? No, I think that you're absolutely spot on. Um, VMware realized where most of their workloads were going. That That's what this is. Um, nobody ports VMware lo- workloads to GCP. Nobody moves anything to Oracle. Mm-hmm. So this is Amazon and AW, or AWS and Microsoft taking the lion's share and, my, and VMware realizing I got to make a friend. So these are the two that I'm going to make. And I think that ultimately this is going to be kind of the pattern for uh, cloud workload migrations is, you know, partnering with both cloud providers and basically having two masters to get money from so that you don't lose the customer in the long run because, oh, well, we were going to go to AWS, but you don't support it. So bye. <laughs> well, and and uh, we'll jump down, I think, a little bit later into the rundown uh, and talk about uh, VMware's Project Pacific, which is one of the other big VMware. You know, we had big acquisitions by VMware. We had this announcement with Microsoft. And with Project Pacific at VMworld, uh, they announced Project Pacific, which was a total re-architecting of vSphere to integrate Kubernetes. Uh, while VMware certainly isn't early to this race by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to container orchestration, they definitely don't feel late to this either. And I think with with also that Microsoft announcement, again, AWS has had that for a while. This seems like a, a point where uh, a lot of enterprises have moved beyond like, you know, should we do this cloud thing to we're definitely moving everything over to the cloud. We need to have kind of the tooling to do that. And VMware seems to be timing a lot of stuff right to kind of catch uh, the momentum as it builds there. Given enterprise inertia in adopting new tech, uh, did VMware nail the time here? Does it feel right to you, Tom? And how big a deal is this for them to stay dominant as, you know, a way to be, you know, the way to serve applications going forward, whether it's, you know, uh, this Project Pacific running in Azure uh, going forward or, or something else? I don't necessarily know that the timing was good or bad. Um, I think what this is, is VMware understands that they have to do this in order to stay relevant. Because remember, I told you, on the one hand, you've got Amazon and Azure who are the um, migration targets. Yeah. What about people that are refactoring workloads and saying, you know what, I can run this as microservices uh, and and move it into a container? Uh, VMware doesn't have a counter for that. Period. I mean, what Proton, <laughs> Photon, whatever they called it. The fact that I can't even remember what it was should tell you how popular it was. <laughs> um, Project Pacific is essentially, please don't give up on us yet. It's the same management tools you know and love from the admin side for the server huggers. And then for the DevOps people, they can run those containery things that they want, and they'll never know any different. So this is VMware attempting to keep all of the horses from getting out of the cloud barn. <laughs> it just seems like VMware is, again, where we've seen repeatedly and repeatedly, uh, you know, large companies, they have a very successful business model. No arguing that VMware has a very successful you know, business model, even as things are shifting Instead of just doubling down on business as usual, which maybe you could argue this Azure move, you know, this with with uh, Microsoft is it's like okay, don't don't change anything, just move it to the cloud, and you can keep everything the same, and you know, don't have to worry about it. It, it seems like uh, while maybe they're not trying to cannibalize stuff, uh, they're they're seeing where the I guess they're seeing where the puck is going, not going where the puck is at, uh, to use a painful cliche, and um, you know, uh, it, it's surprise. I, I'm waiting for them to make a misstep where I'm like, this, why didn't we have this announcement two years ago? Um, and, and that's why to me, again, 
not being late on this feels feels very important for for Project Pacific. You know, I could see it if they released it at the end of 2020, everyone kind of going like, yeah, about time. Everyone's kind of figuring out something else in the meantime. Exactly. This timing on this is when it had to be. Um, two years ago, they would have cannibalized their existing business, and they weren't going to stand for that. So the blood is mostly running out of the turnip, <laughs> and this is where they have to go next. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, speaking of uh, turnips out of blood, uh, right after Qualcomm and Apple announced modem patent piece, Intel said their turnip was just about done and announced the shocker that they're bowing out of the 5G modem business this April. The company subsequently sold their modem business to Apple for a cool $1 billion, who happened to be their only customer to date. Uh, so I guess it kind of makes sense. Intel was set to launch 5G modems in 2020 and had been kind of talking up the business and, uh, you know, saying they had been talking to new partners and saying that, you know, they're working on power efficiency and speed and all this great stuff and, and, and kind of selling it. That's why I think it was so surprising to a number of people. Intel is facing a number of headwinds, I think we've seen with the forward networks acquisitions and a number of moves that they've made that they've realized, hey, this uh, this whole x86 thing maybe has an endpoint somewhere that we're actually able to see or or a wall that we're you know not going to be able to scale quite so quickly. Uh, but did getting out of that mode of business end up being addition by subtraction in some ways, Tom? Yes, it reduced, it reduced the amount of distraction that Intel had. Um, x86, that horse is about done. And we all know this. I mean, we had a news story a couple of weeks ago where we talked about how Intel is going to try to reduce their manufacturing process down to sub three nanometer. No, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, whereas, you know, we look at all the gains that companies who are making ARM chips have made. How many people have gone out to found ARM chip startups to rebuild, um, you know, smaller, more efficient processors and just, you know, pack the the die with as many of those as they can. Um, you know, Intel was trying to be everything to everyone and it's not working. So what I think is going to ultimately happen is, is that this is going to be, you know, as ironic as it is a leaner, stronger, hungrier Intel that does not have all the random distractions of, you know, let's make some modems for Apple. And, and ultimately, you know, Apple got what they wanted out of it. They got an, uh, a, a club that they can use to smack Qualcomm around when Qualcomm starts getting uppity again. But this, I mean, Intel has to figure out its identity. Are you the x86 gorilla or are you small and nimble and trying to compete against the, you know, ATIs and the NVIDIAs of the world? I, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't honestly think Intel knows yet either. Well, just this week, they actually uh, there was a story that they had acquired an Israeli chip startup that was, you know, uh, working on uh, these kind of. Uh, uh, AI inference and training processors, that kind of stuff. And that, you know, the, the rumor with the acquisition was like a $2 billion acquisition. So not insignificant, I don't think. Uh, the rumor was that was going to kind of totally displace all of their Nirvana chip hardware that they had, uh, you know, they just released new chips earlier this year and really signaling that one, they see that obviously as a growth market and two, that their existing strategy wasn't working. Now, from what I've seen, it sounds like they're going to still use the software stack that they had in place, which seems to be working and just kind of move on to that new platform. Platform, but you know, maybe an Intel, um, you know, kind of that realization that Microsoft had, where not Windows just couldn't run on everything. Not that they were throwing x86 at the problem, like the Nirvana stuff was a was a different architecture. But that you know, this uh, this Intel born and bred uh, being the best at everything, maybe necessarily isn't the way to go. And that uh, you know, they'll they'll be making some more acquisitions along that path as well. So interesting to see. 
Uh, next up here, uh, definitely one of the other big things, uh, I think when we're, when we're talking about kind of the larger tech landscape, uh, one was the, you know, the whole importance of the Huawei and, and U.S. China, uh, trade relations, but the other was kind of big tech, uh, meeting regulation or meeting, uh, regulators, at least in the U.S. Um, uh, for one in July, we had the FTC levying the, its biggest ever fine against Facebook, uh, for a cool $5 billion for violating a previous FTC, uh, settlement regarding user data. Um, you know, I think reactions to that were fairly mixed. On the one hand, it was a massive fine compared to all their other fines. Their last biggest fine uh, was $22 million against Google a couple of years ago. So, you know, signaling that they're willing to put down a hammer, however, how effective that can be in the long term, Facebook basically wrote it off in a quarter um, and it really didn't impact their earnings um, from a stock market price, uh, at least. So, interesting to see how effective that will be. But I'm, I'm, I'm curious about... You know, we've all, we've also seen stories of you know the FTC and the SEC basically uh, agreeing to jurisdiction for further investigations into Google and Amazon, and then the other side, you know, of of companies trying to get out ahead of this. Microsoft, I think, is is the best at this, where they've gotten in front of a number of problematic areas when it comes to like facial recognition or data privacy, and coming out and saying, you know, we need regulation on this now. And oh, by the way, we want to help write it. But in September, fifty one tech CEOs, including ones from like Amazon, AT and T, Dell, IBM, Qualcomm, uh, Chase, uh, you know, uh, even Walmart, stuff like that, uh, came out and basically wrote an open letter to Congress saying, please write data regulation so that we're not do- meeting piecemeal requirements from CCPA and the Vermont data broker law and all these other you know smaller laws that are coming up from the states and come up with a national standard for that so i guess tom this larger spectrum of this uh you know are we going to see i guess more regulators laying the hammer or more companies trying to get ahead of this in 2020 four letters for you c c p a that's in a nutshell is live now Yeah, that that's what it is, is this is going to be a massive problem for companies going forward. Um, They've had their hand in the cookie jar for far too long and they're going to get smacked hard. And and yeah, you know, Facebook will tell you, yeah, we we made back that five billion dollar fine in a quarter, but they've got to be mad. You know why? Because someone finally stood up to them and they're not going to like that. And the next one that gets smacked with a huge fine isn't going to like it either. And so some of the companies are finally starting to figure out that you can't play fast and loose with the rules anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Where this ends up going, though, I don't know. How much harder can you smack Facebook to get them to pay attention? Um, If you smack back at Google, they're just going to shut down more products. And (laughs) and I don't know, ultimately, you know, where where this is going to lead. I mean, CCPA's first big fine is going to have to be a huge one in order to make people sit up and pay attention and say, you know what, we weren't kidding around when we passed this. Uh, I think regulation, though, is going to be a huge story in 2020. And what we're going to find is there's been a lot of sieves out there of data leaking everywhere. And this is going to force some people to tighten things up a little bit. Kind of like, you know, we had that gut check moment with GDPR. And by and large, it hasn't killed us yet, but it definitely hasn't made things pleasant. Yeah, definitely. Um, such a great point that, uh, I, and, and I think what makes CCP have its own unique challenges is GDPR had a weird situation where it was the set of standards, but there was no specific laws that had yet been enacted because every individual uh, 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 country in the European Union had to devise their own enforcement and their own kind of standards for that. So part of it was meeting the the general the the larger requirements, the more general requirements of GDPR. I know general data protection that's redundant. Um, 
But then it was, okay, then how does that actually live in an enforcement area where the California one is very direct? It's like, here's here's the law, and oh, by the way, we're the largest uh, and <laughs> and the state with the, the most revenue uh, that you're making off of us. So uh, set up and pay attention, please. Interesting to see if uh, in an election year in the U.S. we'll see any movement on uh, further regulation. My guess is a hearty no. And finally, the last story we had here, uh, pouring some out, we talked about this last month, uh, that in November, Morantis announced that it acquired Docker Enterprise, basically uh, taking everything from the brand, the IP, uh, the Docker Enterprise engine, their trusted registry, unified control plane, and CLI, uh, and taking all of that, and hey, we're going to uh, take your ball and go play in our court. Docker itself still exists as a company, um, but I don't know what they're doing. They're doing developer tools, I guess. Uh, but clearly, Mirantis saw the, uh, the horn off that unicorn uh, and mounted it on a wall somewhere. I think a lot of people thought that this was, you know, this was the way Docker was trending. But I, I was surprised to see it in 2019. I guess, does that have a larger uh, uh, story for the industry, Tom? And is there a company that you see set up for a similar fate in 2020? So Docker wins my uh, award for the decade of you zigged when the entire market zagged. Um, you know, who's going to run Kubernetes, uh, a year later, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, and I, I, you know, I feel, I, I feel for them. They were a pioneer. They did a lot of stuff. I mean, it, to this day, when you mention containers, Docker, that whale is something that comes up for a lot of people. The problem is, is like literally the entire market transformed around you and, and you're left there holding, well, bags of investor cash while the investors are tapping their feet going, when are we getting paid, guys, <laughs> today? And so that's what ended up happening. Uh, I don't know that I can foresee something this crazy happening in 2020, um, simply because I don't think the, any of the startups in other areas are quite mature enough to really make a big splash and then get vacuumed up. I mean, where are you going to find that? You're going to find that in AI and ML? Or are you going to find it in some other you know, hairy corner of tech, the cloud market is completely saturated with startups. But I mean, I don't see like any one of them making the splash of, you know, oh, oh, my God, did you see who Amazon bought yesterday? That's yeah. no, it's not something that I foresee being a huge uh, needle mover. Yeah, if anything, we need a company, we need the docker of AI ML, right, to be like the, yeah. the hey, here's how you actually We've had this idea and this tech out here for a while. Here's how you actually implement that in a useful way to, to be too late to, as the industry changes or something like that. I mean, the only thing I was thinking about, and, and I am not saying that the, the company is remotely in the same situation, but I was thinking like maybe in the HCI space, like, like not like Nutanix is in that situation and by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but like that the, the bloom has fallen off that road, like where it's, it's not quite as unicorny. It's a little bit more, oh, okay, we've. We were we were sold the HCI bill of goods and it's fine, but it's not mm -hmm. you know it's not blowing up the world. I definitely don't think we're going to see uh, you know Nutanix sold for parts or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but that was like the industry I could see like sort of analogous. But outside of them, there's a ton, I mean there's a ton of companies in HCI. They're just kind of the most well known in that space, and that's that's why I bring that up. Kind of similar to Docker and containers, you know. Mm -hmm. But that just about brings us to the end of this year in review. Like I said, a lot of interesting news, um, a lot of potential signals for where we could see 2020 start to take us. Um, and I am interested to see that reminder, though. 
Uh, we are going to be taking off the next two weeks because I don't think anyone is going to tune in for a Christmas Day or a New Year's Eve show. Uh, you're more than welcome to just kind of chill on the Gestalt IT Facebook page. Um, we'll, we'll say happy holidays or something, I'm sure. Uh, but um, uh, so no shows next two weeks and then we'll be back uh, the, the week after on the whatever the 6th, 7th or something like that in January. And good times will be had by all. But we'll be back uh, first uh, first Wednesday of the year uh, at 1230 p.m. Eastern time uh, running down the IT news of the week. Tom, where can people find more of your great stuff if they're so inclined? Oh, you can find me all over the place, networkingnerd.net. You can find me on Twitter as Networking Nerd. You can also head over to gestaltit.com. I just published an article today about MetaGeek, and I made as many references to the National Anthem as I could possibly fit into a blog post that wasn't about the National Anthem. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. You can find a lot of my stuff on gestaltit.com. And if you're interested, there was an interesting uh, rumor out that GCP was looking to maybe get out of the, or Google was looking to get out of the cloud market. I talked about that on Daily Tech News Show. So check that out at dailytechnewsshow.com yesterday as that news broke. Um, so check out some hot takes on that as well. Like I said, we'll be back, uh, first of the year, or not first of the year, but first Wednesday of the year, 1230 p.m. Eastern time. Until then. From me, from Tom Hollingsworth, from everyone here at Gestalt IT, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.